At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the Song of Solomon. The first chapter and the first four verses. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Let's give ear now to God's inspired Word. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore the virgins love you. Draw me away. We will run after you. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. Rightly, Do they love you? May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Relying upon God's help this evening, let's focus our attention upon verse 2 of the passage that we just read from Song of Solomon, chapter 1. And this morning we considered verse 3. And so we're kind of working backwards here, but obviously this morning we had the outpouring of baptism, and this evening we come to the intimate communion of the Lord's table, and so we're, we're handling it in that order for that reason. Verse 2 opens this Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, which he wrote as a picture of God and His people, and of Christ and the church, and even we could say Christ and the believer. Every believer should read the words of the bridegroom and understand them by faith to be speaking to him or her. Verse 2, the bride begins this song. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, For your love is better than wine. This morning we considered why the true Christian loves Christ. Why do we love Him? We love Him, but why? Because of His name. Not just because of what He can do for us. Although we love Him because He first loved us. His love, His good gifts that He showers upon us. Absolutely, that's a reason that we love Him. That increases our love for Him. But even those gifts really cause us to love Him because they point us to His character. They point us to His name. Why does the true Christian love Christ? Because of His name. His name is as fragrant ointment poured forth. We considered that this morning. And just by way of introduction... The name Solomon. Christ is the greater Solomon. You think of this this name that means peace. The man of peace. Similar, according to some scholars, as the word Shiloh in Genesis 49, which is a prophecy of the king of Judah who would come, even the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And it says that Shiloh must come. Until Shiloh comes, the man of peace. The king of peace. Melchizedek, the king of Salem. King of Shalom, King Solomon, the King of Peace, uh, as we see with Melchizedek, and the Prince of Peace, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, 
His name shall be called Prince of Peace. And according to Ephesians 2, He Himself is our peace. Jesus doesn't simply provide peace. He is peace itself. He is our reconciliation with God. And it is when we are tempted toward anxiety that we let that be known through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And the peace of God guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So He is our peace. He is our Shiloh, our Solomon, even greater than Solomon himself. We love Him because of His name. And we could go on and on. But what we find in verse 2, as Solomon begins by putting these words in the mouth of the bride. Those who truly love Christ desire to experience ongoing sensible manifestations of His love for them. Those who truly love Christ, we love Him because of His name. It says, fragrant ointment poured forth. The aroma is beautiful and attractive. Those who truly love Christ desire to experience ongoing sensible, or we might say felt, manifestations of His love for them. And that's what this entire book is all about. It's about that communion and fellowship between God and His people in and through Christ. That is what the book is about. It is the the choicest, noblest theme that could possibly be considered. Psalm 45, 1 and 2, my heart is overflowing with a good theme. This is the theme. And that's why it begins with this, let Him kiss me with the kisses of His mouth. Something that if we're not careful and we become cold and dry and stodgy in our relationship with God through Christ, words that might seem audacious, words that might seem inappropriate. How could we think in these terms? We know the Bible says that just as there's a romantic marital love between husband and wife, even so that points to something deeper and greater. Christ and His bride, the church, we know that. We can, we can uh, recite that Sunday school answer. But listen to these words. Let Him kiss me with the kisses of His mouth, for your love is better than wine. The true Christian is not content to have a marriage certificate. The true Christian is not content to have some experience in the past on the honeymoon, the, the day of espousals, that early period in the Christian life when I went forward at the meeting or whatever, and I had certain emotions, and then it's over. My friend, a true Christian desires ongoing sensible manifestations of Christ's love for them. In other words, the true Christian desires to be kissed with the kisses of his mouth. That is what a kiss is. It's a sensible manifestation of love. It's an expression of heart affection. Okay, Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, the mouth kisses. At least in terms of the perfect love we're speaking of here. Marital love on its best day, perhaps we could say. But that is what a kiss is. Of course, kisses in the Bible and in human history are not limited to romantic expressions of, of marital love and intimacy. Uh, There's the holy kiss in the New Testament churches, a greeting. There are kisses between family members and and friends and things of this sort. Uh, It's an expression of friendship. 
But thinking here, obviously, in the context, we're thinking here of that intimate marital kiss. And we shouldn't shy away from that. There's a sense in which the church today has shied away from it. Perhaps men who feel uncomfortable speaking of receiving the kisses of Christ's mouth. Perhaps sensuality has become so toxic in our day that we can't possibly think about being the bride of Christ without having all kinds of things come into the equation that make us feel uncomfortable. Previous eras did not have that toxic sensuality. That Previous eras of Christians for well over a thousand years, we can say it in one way or another for the last two thousand years, men of God have been con- not just content but comfortable saying they desire to be kissed with the kisses of Christ's mouth. They desire that affection. John the Apostle leaning on Christ's bosom. Leaning on His shoulder. The intimacy of love for Christ. And the true Christian, when they get to heaven, will be clinging to Him no less than Mary Magdalene at the empty tomb. Because there's a natural magnetic attraction and gravitation that marital love and sexual love have been created by God by way of anticipation to point to this greater love to which all of those outward, legitimate, sensual pleasures point. Let Him kiss me with the kisses of His mouth. My friends, there are many ways that Jesus expresses His love for His church. We're told in the Proverbs, better are the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. Jesus says, those that I love, I rebuke and chasten. So it is the case that Jesus expresses His love in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's rebuking us, correcting us, chastening us, disciplining us. Better are the wounds of that friend that sticks closer than a brother than the kisses of an enemy. But I would say this, far better are the kisses of that friend that sticks closer than a brother, than the wounds of that friend. Far more pleasurable is to hear the Word of Jesus Christ from His very lips showering us with promises, with love, with forgiveness, with affection. Yes, when we're rebuked and chastened, there's a blessing in that. But let's be honest. We desire one day to hear the kiss of His mouth Well done, good and faithful servant. And to enter into an eternity where there will no longer be the need for the wounds of a friend. In fact, the value of the wounds of a friend is it is the precursor to the kisses of his mouth. And uh, more could be said, actually. That theme appears later in the book. But let him kiss me. The true Christian desires to, to feel his love. Sensibly in his or her own experience. And these sensible tokens of Christ's love proceed from His mouth. From His mouth. Now again, we think of the different layers in redemptive history. When this is written, we think of it in more general terms. Jehovah with His people Israel. As you see throughout the major prophets and the minor prophets, epitomized especially in Hosea, where that's the relationship. God is the husband. Israel is the bride. And that, that's, I mean, you could say almost half the Old Testament is devoted to that type of theme. It's, it's not uncommon. That's why Solomon chose this theme. 
But if we think in those general terms, then in a sense we can think of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself as the mouth of Jehovah. Christ Himself is the eternal Word. He is the second person of the Trinity by whom the triune God has spoken. He spoke in times past by the prophets and in various ways, but now He has spoken by His Son, His mouthpiece. The eternal Word of God who was with God, who is God. The Word Himself. And that Word has become incarnate, full of grace and truth. And if we think of Christ as the Bridegroom, and the church and believers as the bride, we can be even more specific and we can say that this, these kisses of His mouth are Christ's way of communicating His love to His people through His inscripturated Word. In other words, the eternal, incarnate Word speaks to us through His inscripturated Word. And this phrase, the kisses of His mouth, would not be misunderstood by the ancient people of God who spoke Hebrew. This is an idiom that's used, for instance, in Genesis 41, verse 40. When Joseph is placed as second in command over all the land of Egypt by Pharaoh, Genesis 41, verse 40, he says, you shall be over My house, and all My people shall be ruled according to Your Word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than You. Now, that phrase in Hebrew, according to Your Word, they'll all be ruled according to Your Word, could be translated as according to the kisses of Your mouth. According to the kisses of Your mouth. And, and what it's saying is that the truth and tenderness of Joseph's Word, remember he had brought the interpretation of the dream that would enable the people of Egypt to survive the famine. He brought bad news, seven years of famine, but he brought good news as well as bad news that if they uh, stored up the seven years of plenty in advance, they would survive the seven years of famine. And it was that hopeful message that Pharaoh is saying it's according to that, according to to the word that you've spoken, according to, as it were, the kisses of your mouth. And Solomon is no stranger to this type of language. Proverbs 24, verse 26, He who gives a right answer kisses the lips. He who gives a right answer kisses the lips. And so it's not surprising that the song of Solomon... You didn't think I was just going to quote Puritans. This is biblical, friends. Solomon himself says that a right answer, the truth and tenderness of a right answer is as it were a kiss upon the lips. And the bride says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his lips. How does Jesus Christ kiss his spiritual bride, the church? How does he do it? How does he he rule over her according to to the kisses of His mouth as the greater Joseph. Well, we we see in Psalm 45, verse 2, in our call to worship, grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. This is our King. This is our Bridegroom. Grace upon His lips. 
He communicates His grace, His truth and tenderness. And in His life, the Lord Jesus Christ was that kind of person that people would go to for comfort in the midst of grief. If you were grieving and you needed to go to someone who would understand you, who would hear you, who would listen to you, who would be sympathetic and compassionate, who would reassure you and comfort your heart, if you were in first century Israel, you would go to Jesus. We're told in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14 and verse 12, that after John the Baptist's head was taken from him by a vicious and brutal act by King Herod, that then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. They went to Him. Why do you think they went to Him? They went to Him for the same reason that Mary and Martha in their various ways in John chapter 11 went to Jesus, appealed to Jesus. The same reason that every believer ought to go to Jesus with whatever concerns, whatever burdens, whatever afflictions, whatever grief and sorrow that you're experiencing, take it to Jesus. These disciples of John the Baptist, they took away this decapitated body filled with grief and sorrow. They buried it. And the first thing they did is they went and told Jesus so that He could kiss them with the kisses of His mouth, His comfort, His peace. That's Jesus. And there are many examples in the Song of Solomon of the Lord Jesus Christ manifesting these kisses of His mouth. Chapter 1, verse 15, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. Chapter 2, verse 2, Like a lily among the thorns, so is my love among the daughters. And Jesus is saying there that His church in Him is beautiful, is adorned, is justified, clothed in righteousness, being sanctified. We feel when we come to the Lord's table that we're so far short of what we should be. And that's true. And that's why we come confessing our sins, humbling ourselves for the the pitiful extent of our sanctification compared to what it should be. But Jesus looks at the real, gradual, genuine work of the Spirit in His church and He says, like a lily among the thorns. My church is a lily compared to that that thorny world around her that's seeking to choke her out, that's seeking to dominate and pierce and attack with violence. She's vulnerable. She's weak. She's just one lily among many thorns surrounded on every side and outnumbered. And yet, He speaks these words of peace and comfort, of truth and tenderness. The kisses of his mouth chapter 4 verse 1 Behold you are fair my love Behold you are fair this is the same type of language that the believer uses in uh, Psalm 45 saying that he is the fairest of the sons of men fairer than the sons of men it speaks of beauty but Jesus says of his church you are beautiful my love behold you are beautiful or fair You have dove's eyes behind your veil, and so on and so forth, if we had time. 
Verse 7 of that chapter, you are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. Jesus, when He comes into our midst to kiss us, to show His love for us, at the heart of it is justification. He is reminding us of the righteousness that He has purchased. That we ought to believe on. That we ought to accept and receive. That though we are sin-spotted in every category of our lives, that in Christ, we are acceptable in Him. We are the righteousness of God in and through Him. We are all fair. All beautiful. He loves us. There is no spot in us. Why? Because we've been purchased by the spotless Lamb of God who takes away our spots and blemishes. And even one day will purge away all the spots and blemishes of His bride, Ephesians 5.25, and will perfect us in the world to come. Jesus is anticipating that. He's kissing us. He's embracing us. He's whispering into our ear the realities of the world to come that He has obtained for us. Chapter 6, verse 4. Oh my love, you are as beautiful as Tirza, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome with an, as an army with banners. He says to His church, don't be intimidated by the thorns. Don't be intimidated by the world. You overcome the world through faith in Me. I have overcome the world. You will overcome the world. And you're awesome fearful as an army with banners. The world ought to be trembling at the church when she has experienced the kisses of His mouth and is strengthened by His ever-faithful promises and declarations of love. We see it as well. Chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter. Again, the beauty. He, he, he observes the beauty of the body of His bride and it reflects His love for, for the new man, the new creature, the new humanity that He is creating and that He is renewing in each believer. He loves to see. He loves to see the sanctification that he's, that he's causing, that He's bringing about in our lives. Even as a husband loves to look upon God's handiwork in the body of his wife, even so Christ as a husband loves to look upon God's handiwork in the life of the sanctified believer. And again, if that makes us feel uncomfortable, then at the end of the day, let's just cut this book out of the Bible. Let's just cut the whole thing out. This is God speaking to us of His love for us in Jesus Christ. My friends, there are so many other kisses of His mouth throughout the Scriptures. Let's just consider some more. Luke chapter 7 and verse 48. Luke chapter 7 verse 48. Here Jesus is receiving worship from this woman of the city who has probably committed some type of sexual sin as her lifestyle and rebellion against God, but she's been converted, she's been forgiven, and she loves Him much because she's been forgiven so much. Verse 48, as Jesus reflects on this, He says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. In the previous verse, speaking to the Pharisee who's all up in arms that Jesus would forgive 
a woman such as this. He says, therefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven. Well, how do we know that they're forgiven? How do we know she has true faith in the Gospel? How do we know, Jesus says, for she loved much. Faith works itself out in love. How do we know she's forgiven? For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now the Bible doesn't record that for us to simply recognize this historical interaction between Jesus and the woman. This was written for our instruction. This was written for us. It was written for you, dear believer. Whatever sin you've committed, if you come to Christ, if you believe on His name, and if you have such a faith that is genuine, it's going to shower Him with love and affection, but if you believe on His name, as He says, your faith has saved you later in the chapter, go in peace. If you believe on His name, then He says this to you. He says it in this passage. He says it from this pulpit. He says it in the Lord's Supper. Your sins are forgiven. Though they be many, your sins are forgiven. And the true Christian will hear that passage and receive it as if Jesus Christ were whispering it into his or her ear at this very moment. The kisses of his mouth. We need to hear that. Jesus in Luke chapter 22, verse 32, as he's about to partake of the Passover feast, with His disciples. Luke 22, verse 32. or This is, this is uh, in advance of that. Sorry, Luke 22, verse 15. There are a couple kisses in this chapter, but Luke 22, 15, uh, right before the Passover, then He said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Who's he talking to? Well, he's talking to the eleven who are truly converted, but these men are dysfunctional. They're proud. They want to be the greatest in the kingdom. Uh, they're, they're having disputes and quarrels among them. They're not listening to Jesus when he's continually telling them about the cross and about the resurrection that is to come. All of these things, they're not listening, they're not paying attention. And they fall asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, they're not doing well. And I'm not saying we should be content to be like the disciples here. The disciples ended up growing in grace. And you see in the book of Acts, they, uh, they're a wonderful example. Uh, we don't want to be content with mediocrity. But when we feel mediocre, like these disciples were, uh, we can listen to the voice of Christ here with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And of course, the Lord's Supper was added to the end of that. And so what is Jesus saying to you, dear believer? He's saying with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this sacrament with you, to be here with you, to commune with you, to be at the table with you, with fervent desire. He, he repeats it with desire. I have desired. He wants to get that message home to our hearts that if you're a believer and you professed your faith and so on, you have a place at this table. 
You are a member of Jesus Christ. And He wants you at this table. And He wants to be with this table right by your side. Even as John leaned upon his breast, He loves you. And He desires to commune with you. And He died for the joy set before Him to spend eternity with you. The kisses of His mouth. I think Satan has far too much success in tempting us towards sin and tempting us to neglect our prayer life and to neglect our membership vows and to go off the rails spiritually simply because we forget about the kisses of His mouth. We forget about the joy of salvation. We forget about the promises and just the beautiful words that He whispers in our ears throughout the Scriptures. Maybe we'd read the Bible regularly more regularly than we do if we knew about these kisses. If we were like the, the bride here who leads off the entire song, let him kiss me. She desires it. She wants it. And my friends, we could go through Genesis to Revelation. The kisses are there consistently. There are rebukes too, but there are kisses of his mouth. Chapter 22, verse 32. Jesus has just revealed to Simon Peter that Satan's going to sift the disciples like wheat, but I have prayed for you. I've prayed for you specifically, Peter, that your faith should not fail. Jesus reassures you, dear believer, He has prayed for you. He is interceding for you that your faith may not fail. You say, but you don't know my circumstances. My faith cannot bear the burden that I'm under. I can't, this is insurmountable. I can't lift this. I can't be faithful and obedient under these circumstances. We use these excuses all the time. I can't do this. I can't do that. I'm doing the best I can. And, and of course, that's all we can do in a sense. But, but listen, Jesus says, I've prayed for you. I will help you. I'm interceding to give you the grace to use that way of escape from temptation, to undergo that trial by faith and count it all joy. I have prayed for you. That's a kiss of his mouth. John chapter 14. John chapter 14. John's gospel is, is a, a shower of kisses from the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to, let's, let's look at a couple in John 14. John 14, 1. John 14, verse 1. Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Let him kiss me with the kiss of his mouth. If he brought this text home to your heart right now, what could be better than that? To know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has ascended into heaven and that he is preparing a place for you. Have you ever doubted your salvation? Have you ever thought, well, if I died right now, I mean, I think I'm saved. I have confidence I'm saved. I come to the Lord's table. But what would happen if I was standing there on judgment day and I was damned to hell and sent to the place of outer darkness. But you see, when, when Christ kisses you with this word of His mouth, listen, believe in Me, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself that where I am, there you may be 
also that you will never be left nor forsaken. You will be with Christ, so you shall ever be with the Lord. Nothing to worry about on Judgment Day. You will be safe in the hands of Christ. The judge on the throne is your defense attorney, your advocate before the Father. He's preparing that place for you right now. And notice he says, if it were not so, I would have told you. What a comfort. What an encouragement. Because there's always this temptation to fear and to think, well, what if there's something I'm not understanding? What if there's an aspect of the the marks of grace, the mark of a true Christian? What if there's something that I'm not understanding and I'm deceived and I'm on my way to hell and I don't know it? Or what if there's something in the Christian life that is vital for my uh, flourishing as a Christian and serving the Lord? And what if it? I just... But he says, look, if there was something else, I'd have told you. Open my Word, read it, study it, hear it preached, It's clear. It's decisive. If it were not so, if there was some other trap door that would, you know, I'd have told you. I'd have warned you about these things. Everything you need for life and godliness. Everything you need for salvation. Everything you need for assurance. Everything you need for an eternity of joy in the presence of God face to face with Jesus. He's told you. He's told you. You don't have to worry that there's something else. Some other... Some other document? No. If it were not so, He would have told you. And He is trustworthy and we can trust Him. When He comes close with the kisses of His mouth and reassures us, we don't need to worry about it. We can rest assured. Let Him kiss me with the kiss. That's my desire. I hope tonight as I come to administer the sacrament, as I commune with the rest of you in Christ, I hope He kisses me with that kiss. Or perhaps with another one. John 14, verse 18. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you orphans. King James says comfortless. And you can see why, right? But the word is orphans. I will not leave you comfortless like an orphan. I will come to you. The previous verse makes it clear that when He ascends into heaven, He's going to send His Spirit at the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit will comfort the people of God. Christ will come to His people and live inside of them in a unique way, in a more powerful way than was experienced by the Old Testament saints. And He will not leave them orphans. He calls them little children all the time. He says, I'm not, it's not like my departure is going to shortchange you of the kisses of my mouth. Oh, you know, Mary Magdalene's not going to be able to grab hold of him and hold on to him. John's not going to be able to lean on him. His disciples, Peter's not going to be able to bow down at his feet. His physicality will have departed, but he will not leave us without these sensible tokens of his love. He will come to us, he will not leave us orphans. Whoever's left you, forsaken you, kicked you to the curb, disregarded you, or made you feel like trash, Jesus is not going to do that. Jesus is always present. And when He's not present in a sense, if we feel that He's not, it, it's, it's our lack of faith. We need to come and cry out, let Him kiss me with the kisses of His mouth. Let Him restore the light of His countenance upon me. 
Let me give you one more. Revelation 2, verse 9. Revelation 2, verse 9. Jesus writing to the churches in Asia Minor, speaking here to the persecuted church of Smyrna, as he often speaks in this way at the introduction of his letters, he says this, Revelation 2, verse 9, I know your works. Again, just picture Jesus. He comes alongside His bride. She's weeping. She's distressed and oppressed and vexed with many cares. And He comes down, sits down next to her, puts His arm around her and whispers this in her ear, I know your works. Tribulation and poverty. But you are rich. That's a beautiful word from Christ. This church that's downtrodden and beleaguered, they're, they're full of affliction and tribulation, and they're just down. And you know what that's like sometimes. Maybe sometimes there aren't even the outward circumstances to justify it, but for whatever reason, we're down, we're depressed, we're discouraged about our situation. But you are rich. You have eternal heavenly treasure. The Roman Catholic Church talks about the treasury of merit from Mary and uh, the saints. My friends, you have a treasury of merit that, I mean, Jesus in His little pinky finger has more merit than all the saints and Mary combined. In fact, uh, all, of, all of those individuals would be lost apart from that merit of Christ. But that treasury of merit, you're rich, you have righteousness, you have the exceeding riches of knowing Jesus Christ in a personal relationship. You have the entire Bible at your disposal. You have the freedom. Now, I'm not saying every Christian has this, maybe not even in Smyrna, but speaking to you, think of the riches that you have, the spiritual privileges and freedoms to gather together, to come to the Lord's table, to feast upon Christ unified with a body of believers. Think of the riches that you have. You may not have riches in your bank account, but your treasure is in heaven. Indeed, your heavenly treasure, Christ, is in you and with you right now as you come to this table. Uh, who cares about your tax bracket? Who cares about your, your outward wealth in comparison to this? You're rich. You're rich. You have it. You have what the world could only desire and one day will desire and will have it not. Well, these are the, the, the kisses of His mouth that we desire Him to bring home to us in and through His Word. Now, our entrance into this intimate communion begins with meditative thoughts and desires and then it develops into personal prayer. And you can see the beauty of the way Solomon puts this here in the words of the bride. The way that he describes this progression from meditative thoughts and desires into personal prayer. Notice, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. It's in the third person. And so she's just in beginning this song. By the way, she doesn't even say who the pronoun refers to. Who is the hymn? But my friends, I think we know, every believer knows who the hymn is. It's Him. Doesn't even, Solomon doesn't even have to say it. We know who it is. It's Christ. And that's 
who and what she's thinking about in her mind. She's thinking of Him. She's rehearsing these verses that she's hidden in her heart. She's meditating on them. She's developing a desire. Let Him. Let Him. And then, my friends, that transition is ever so seamless from thoughts and desires to a direct personal prayer. For your love is better than wine. Why is it that our prayers are dry and cold? Because our thoughts and our desires are dry and cold. If we were thinking about Christ, we would desire Him. Boy, I'd I'd love to receive a, a, a gracious experience in my Bible reading today. I'd love to be reassured by the Holy Spirit through the Word of Christ. Uh, Let Him kiss me with the kisses of His mouth and pretty soon we're saying it directly to Christ. Pretty soon He's already in the room and we're addressing Him personally for your love is better than wine. And this intimate communion uh, which begins with our thoughts and our desires is in a significant way kindled through the sacraments. The sacraments which are, as it were, a visible and tangible Word from Christ. The Word of the Gospel that is proclaimed, that is a savor of life unto life to those who believe, that pours out the ointment, the fragrant aroma of Christ through the preaching of His Word, that same Word is confirmed or visibly and tangibly authenticated and manifested in the sacraments. Your love is better than wine. Let Him kiss me with the kisses of His mouth. Notice the outward imagery. And in the sacraments, these tokens, these elements of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine are brought near. They touch our lips. We take hold of them and as it was with Isaiah, this has touched your lips. Your sin is pardoned and your iniquity is removed. It's a visible, tangible kiss from the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who experience Christ's love in this way know it to be superior to all types of earthly pleasures. And there are many earthly pleasures. And there are many lawful earthly pleasures that we're not saying that it's wrong to enjoy good food or marital intimacy or a beautiful sunset or sunrise or I mean the the list goes on there are many enjoyable things in this world and we give thanks to God for them Uh, we're not as H.L. Mencken once said of the Puritans he defined the Puritans as someone who somebody somewhere whose uh, greatest fear is that somebody might Uh, be having fun somewhere, something to that effect, okay? We're not saying that. We love fun. But those who experience the kisses of Christ's mouth know that it's far superior to the kisses of anybody else's mouth or to any other pleasure imaginable in this world. It's better than wine. It's better than wine. His love is better. Wine in the Bible signifies gladness. The wine of gladness to make merry the heart of man. I think it's Psalm 104. But Christ's love has a greater power to give us joy, to give us pleasure, to give us a sense of celebration. We come to the Lord's table, bread and wine, but you know yourself, it's not about the bread, it's not about the wine, it's about the love. It's a feast of love. 
Jude doesn't call it a feast of bread and wine. He calls it a feast of love because that's what we're receiving in and through those elements. A love that is better than wine. Certainly better than bread. And Psalm 63 verse 3 makes this same point. God willing, we'll be singing this at the table. Psalm 63 verse 3. Because your loving kindness is better than life. That's one thing to say, better than wine. And in a way, it's a figure of speech taking one example of earthly gladness in this life and saying it's better than wine. But the way David puts it, your loving kindness, your love is better than life itself. If you read this psalm, it seems clear that he's in the wilderness of Judah. He's lost many of the comforts and pleasures of life. And he, he's, he's in the wilderness. He doesn't have the conveniences, the comforts, the wealth, and the pleasure at his disposal. But he says, God's love is still with me, and it's better than all that this world and this life has to offer. Your love is better than life. My lips shall praise you. Verse 5, my soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. He says, your, your love is more satisfying to my soul than even the, the greatest amount of food, delicious food that could possibly be set before me. All, uh, what is it, one of the psalm translations, all choice and hearty meats, you know, I'd rather have your love. I'd rather go hungry and starve from, uh, uh, of food than to starve of the love of God in Jesus Christ. And Psalm 4, we sang it before the service, there are many people saying, who will show us goodness? But the psalmist says, Lord, we find goodness when You shine the light of Your countenance upon us. In other words, Your smile, Your acceptance, Your love, Your embrace, the kisses of Your mouth. When we hear the love and affection of Your voice, the light of Your countenance, that is our goodness, our satisfaction. Far beyond grain and new wine, it's better than wine. It's better than life. Paul, in fact, says everything else really, if it in any way conflicts with the love of Christ and knowing Christ, he says he puts it in the debit column. He says, I count it all loss compared to winning Christ, compared to knowing Christ, and compared to being found in Him, clothed in His righteousness. That's why every believer, as we come to the Lord's table, we know we would rather be absent from the body, absent from this life, and present with the Lord in glory. To live is Christ, and to die is gain in the presence of our Savior. Better than wine. And notwithstanding the deep intimacy of this fellowship, the fact of the matter is, this sensible communion with Christ is meant to be experienced corporately. This is not merely me and Jesus. This is not merely going out into the woods and meditating on a log. This is something that is meant to be experienced collectively, corporately. Not saying don't go meditate on a log. But uh, bring your Bible perhaps. But prayer and personal Bible reading, very important. But heaven, heavenly communion is not an individual thing merely. It's corporate. It's the people of God. 
the Lord's Supper, the Feast of Love that signifies all of these beautiful things. It is a corporate thing. It's a collective thing. We come together communing not only with Christ, but with one another. And that's why the text emphasizes again and again that this is why the virgins love you. The virgins, the ten virgins, representing the church, as Jesus puts it, the virgins. Uh, Revelation 7, Revelation 14, that follow Jesus wherever He goes. Those who respond to Christ with a love that says, I will seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. You, O God, what do I have in heaven besides you? The virgin. In other words, pure and holy in her devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says, I'm jealous for you, verse 2. Jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. He says that of the church collectively. The virgins. The virgins love you. We will run. She says, draw me away. And of course we come to the Lord's table. Lord, draw me to your table. Draw me away from sin. Draw me away from this tempting world. Draw me away from myself and my selfishness. Draw me away from all that would compete with my love for you. Draw me away, but then immediately we will run after you. She's not wanting to be drawn away by herself He who isolates himself is unwise, the Proverbs say. She desires to run and be drawn with other believers. And I hope that's your desire here this evening. We will run. We will be glad in Him. We will remember His love more than wine. Again, there's bread and wine. But what is it signifying Christ His broken body. His shed blood. We remember His death until He comes. We remember it. We declare it. He says, do this in remembrance of Me. I think that's written somewhere in front of me on the table there. Remember His love. Remember His saving work on the cross. And we do it together. Rightly, she says, do they love you. She's, she's saying, I love Him. And there's an intimacy as John on the bosom of the Lord, but there's a collective unity around the table. Rightly, does He love you and she loves you and they love you? She's not alone. And this is precisely Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 and following, uh, where he says this, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. You realize when you come to this table, you're not just communing with the people at this table, but you're communing with the whole family in heaven and earth. You're communing with the Jerusalem above, which is our mother, the heavenly Jerusalem, the spirits of just men made perfect, as Hebrews 12 says, You're communing with the whole family in heaven and earth with all the believers gathered for worship throughout the entire world. Throughout all nations of the kingdom of Christ. The whole family in heaven and earth. That He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. There's something individual there. 
for the individual Christian, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, and you say, well, Christ in my heart, that's individual, but rooted and grounded, that is imagery of an edifice or a building, rooted together, grounded together, we might say. He's beginning to get corporate here. Rooted and grounded in love, that is for one another. And then he says it may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The beauty of the Lord's table and of the Christian church as a whole is that we are a collective bride and we come to celebrate collectively. We're eating and drinking together at this table with all the saints, as it were, comprehending the incomprehensible love of Christ, but each believer's thinking about something different. Each believer's confessing something different, different types of sins, different weaknesses. Every believer comes with different baggage that they're unloading, casting their burden on the Lord. Every believer comes with a different kiss of his mouth, a different promise perhaps that they're clinging to, a different aspect of the sermon that struck them in this way or that way. They're coming in a unique way. There's a a, a unity, but a complexity and diversity as we comprehend with all the saints And even with all of our diversity, we have not even scratched the surface on the the infinite dimensions of His love. And that's why we can take communion again and again and again and again. We do it frequently. We do it every couple months. Why do we do that? Because there's always more. There's always another kiss. Always another promise. Always another sin to confess. Burden to cast upon the Lord again and again and again. And we will never exhaust that fountain of blessing and love for all eternity with all the saints. And we need to be careful here as we, as we look at, as we, as we draw to a close here, as we look at this intimate communion, it always produces, it always produces a life that is characterized by reverent obedience. It's not simply a feeling that, that we you know, as, as, what is it, Boston. More than a feeling. Well, your relationship with Jesus Christ is more than a feeling. It's more than just an experience. It's more than just that sense, that felt sense, the kisses of His mouth. That is there, but that produces something. The love that God has for you in Christ as it's reassuring you and as Christ is showering you with kisses, Because of His love, you love Him and you keep His commandments. It always produces that reverent obedience. Notice the bride. Draw me away. We will run after you. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Again, Revelation speaks of those virgins following the Lord Jesus Christ. We will come after you. We will run in the way of your commandments. We will run after you. And notice she speaks of him reverently, the King. The King has brought me into his chambers. Yes, we appreciate the collective element, but there's still that individual intimacy. The King has brought me in to his chambers. And the fact that he's 
been so lavish upon me doesn't mean that I respect him any less as the king. He's on the throne. He's in charge. What he says is law. I need to do it. The true Christian takes in the kisses of his mouth and then as a servant, even a slave of Christ, has no problem being a slave of Christ, says this is a joy to do the will of my Lord and Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. To submit my members as instruments not of unrighteousness, but of righteousness. To kiss the Son in worshipful, reverent, intimate obedience. My friends, it can't just be a feeling. It needs to be a consistent life of obedience. We need the feelings, yes. We need the promises and the assurance. We need to seek that every day. But it has to result in obedience. Listen to this quote by Richard Baxter. He says, How often have I heard a common drunkard with tears cry out against himself for his sin and yet go on in it? And how many gracious persons have I known whose judgments and wills have been groundedly resolved for God and holiness, and their lives have been holy, fruitful, and obedient, and yet could not shed a tear for sin, nor feel any great sorrows or joys. If you judge of a man by his earnestness, in other words, his outward emotions, in some good moods, and not by the constant tenor of his life, you will think many a hypocrite to be better than most saints. He's saying if it's just a matter of publicly displaying that sort of outward emotional outburst or something like that, he says that's not the judge of a true saint. That's not the judge of of a person who really is receiving the kiss of Christ's mouth and who is in a thriving relationship with Christ. What is the test? Jesus says it. John 14. Can't get out of that chapter. Again and again. He says, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. And he goes on to say, If you hear and observe my word, I will come to you. My Father and I will make our home with you. We will commune and fellowship with you. So don't misunderstand. The Song of Solomon is not just a bunch of jolly, frivolous emotion. The Song of Solomon is saying, yes, the emotion. But it's got to be a real, genuine running after the King according to His commandments. And so if you come to this table tonight, if you come to this table or you are planning to come to this table and you're living a lie. You may say you love Christ, but you're living in rebellion against Him. You've got your fingers in your ears. You won't hear the preaching of the Word. You won't hear the brothers or sisters confronting you. You won't hear the Bible itself. You won't hear the Word of the King. You're not running after Him. You're running in the other direction or you're half asleep on the side of the road. If you're living a lie, you have to stay back. And I don't want to say that. I want everybody to come forward. But I have to warn you. The Bible is explicit. Psalm 15, Psalm 24. Those who come to fellowship on the holy hill of the Lord must have clean hands and a pure heart. They must have confessed their sins, been cleansed by Christ, and come with a clear conscience that they are not 
living in any known sin. They're not continuing in any sin that they're aware of and they've been confronted about. My friends, don't come to this table if your relationship with Christ is merely an external appearance. Mere emotionalism. Or some kind of token ecclesiastical status that you received at some point in your life. If that's the case, then the cup of blessing will be a cup of judgment and of wrath itself. We hope judgment, chastisement, but I wouldn't mess with that cup. If you're not coming truly confessing your sins and striving against sin, in other words, let me give you an example. If you're living in a habitual lifestyle sin and it's happening and nothing is changing and you're not doing anything about it and you haven't seen any fruit of repentance in your life and you're not getting help and you're just continuing and you might feel a little bad and you might you know, scratch your right hand a little, but you're not going to cut it off. And you might do this, but you're not going to pluck it out. Do not come to this table. Do not come to this table. It will be a table of judgment. And it could be the fact that your sinful, habitual lifestyle sin is getting worse and worse as a judgment because you've been coming and living a lie. This intimate communion, this kiss of Christ's mouth is not to be taken lightly. And the warning that is given to the kings and judges of the earth, let's not forget it applies to ourselves. Psalm 2 verse 10, closing with this, Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Let's apply it to ourselves. Serve the Lord with fear. In other words, obey Him. Take Him very seriously. When you disobey Him, take that seriously. Deal with it. Repent. Walk in righteousness. Get help. Do whatever. Spare no expense whatsoever to serve Him. And rejoice with trembling. Take Him seriously. Take His law seriously. His judgment seriously. His promises seriously. Take everything about Him seriously. Take His table seriously. Kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. So, if you truly receive the kisses of His mouth, my friend, we love Him because He first loved us. Return the favor as it were. Return those kisses by consecrating yourself at this table to new obedience. To serve Him with fear and trembling. To rejoice and yet tremble before this Almighty King. Blessed are those who put their trust in Him. This is not meant to discourage a true Christian who's battling sin, who's struggling with assurance, who's dealing with a question of conscience at the last minute just before the second. No, no. This is, this is a clear black and white issue. You're living in sin. You know it. The people around you know it. God knows it. Kiss the Son. And the first step is to honor His table and stand back from it and then to seek repentance and new obedience in due course. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ that He kisses us with the kisses of His lips, that He is here to offer His body and blood pictured in the sacrament that we may feast upon His love which is better than life. 
We pray that we would come to this table with sincerity and genuineness, not as those who add uh, drunkenness to thirst and bless themselves in their hearts. Lord, we pray that would be nobody here today, but if it is, give them the fear of Almighty God. And yet we pray that You would reassure the hearts of Your people of Your love and of our great Prince of Peace that we may come and that our hearts and minds may be guarded in Him. We pray in His name. Amen.